Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, I have been increasingly interested in the role technology plays in our lives, but also the challenges that it is posing us right now, and especially as we emerge from this global crisis uh, into or back into a world that believes that uh, tech solutions are there for every single problem. And to that end, I've been doing sort of a short series of episodes on tech. So the past two episodes, first with Peter Biebergall and then with Duncan Laurie, were about the occult possibilities of technology. But I really wanted to talk with somebody who had been through that tech world um, and who had been sort of (laughs) processed through that anti-life equation of tech, especially in the Bay Area in the U.S. And there really is no one better to talk to about this than Wendy Liu. Wendy uh, was a software engineer and a startup founder in the Bay Area and now is the author of the book Abolish Silicon Valley. Uh, you can tell probably by the, <laughs> the title of what she thinks of tech and technocracy uh, now, but um, you know she brings a really great perspective because she was in it. So we talk about a lot on this episode. We talk about how we got here, um, not just with the kind of evil version of tech that we are encountering now, but also the awakening disenchantment uh, with tech and tech solutionism. Uh, We talk about the problems that are embedded in tech itself. Is there an apocalyptic or a death drive in tech? Is there a problem with uh, the asymmetricality of who knows this language of tech and who doesn't? And to that language thing, we also talk about the language of theory, um, you know, like critical theory and philosophy versus the language of coding and the difference uh, in reading those and trying to process those. We talk about the role of repression uh, in tech companies and oppression and how that's exploding right now uh, in protests, but also how that dampens the possibility for different kinds of political action. Wendy has such a great way of talking about all this stuff because her book really, in some ways, is a book, I view it at least, of forgiveness for people that are in tech because she understands what it's like to be sort of lured in and pulled into that process. And she knows all the kinds of conversations that did and also did not take place that would have assisted people to see clearly um, or that did assist people to see clearly if they decided to get out. It takes a lot of courage to leave that industry um, and especially to speak critically about it. So I'm so excited to have Wendy on the show. Um, So this is the part where I promote a big tech company (laughs) right now, uh, which is Patreon. So I have patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. It's how the show is funded. It's how I've been able to bring you all these episodes. I do think it's a different kind of model of economics and therefore a better kind of tech company. Um, It certainly helped me. All you do is you go out to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and you give at whatever amount you 
you can each month. It could be a dollar, it could be five dollars, ten dollars, or up. You get cool stuff back, but I think most importantly, and what everybody seems to feel pretty good about, and I certainly feel great about, is that you contribute and you're a part of the mission of the show, which is to bring deep conversations, urgently needed conversations, conversations that have value and potency to the world and to inspire those kinds of conversations in people's lives. We really need to move less and less into small talk and more and more into big talk. That's what is being demanded of us right now. That's what the challenge of our time is. So I hope that you will go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and involve yourself and participate and support that kind of conversation. Um, If you can't support it. I know this is a weird financial time for everybody. Uh, It's totally okay, of course. Do subscribe um, to the show on whatever podcast platform you like to get your podcasts on and give it a five-star rating on iTunes. Um, It doesn't matter if there's a shitty rating on there or like a low rating. It doesn't affect me negatively. And in fact, those kind of get swept under the carpet by the way that system works. But if you give it a five-star rating, it gets bumped up in visibility. So the more five-star ratings it has, the better, uh, the more visible it is to people. So please consider doing that. And if you do support the show already, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for being a part of this. All right, everybody, that's enough for me. Uh, So let's uh, start this episode with Wendy Liu on uh, fighting technocracy and abolishing Silicon Valley. Here we go. everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and I'm very excited to have you here or wherever in this strange space with me, Wendy Liu. Hello. Hi, thanks so much <laughs> for having me. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's start. Um, so I, I remember, so in maybe 2000 and five or something. I lived in Amherst, Massachusetts. And for some reason, there were people that lived there that were working on total information awareness projects. Um, (laughs) I don't know why in Amherst, Massachusetts they were, but, um, you know, and uh, I'll explain what all that is in the show notes to people that want to check that out. Um, But, you know, I remember talking to my friend who was working for them and he said, um, you know, I really feel like I'm on the inside so I can change things. And uh, I don't really know what else to do now knowing what I know. I feel like I can't leave. I feel like I can't stop. And, you know, eventually, like the project he worked on became sort of uh, rather innocuous. It became, you know, the IMDB, basically. <laughs> um, but I was thinking, you know, I was reflecting on that as I was reading your book, because um, it, it really, your book reminded me of things that are built um, it, with a sort of one kind of moral conscience or ethical framework, and then they get used or appropriated in a different way. And I know that what you were developing uh as you had, or as a sort of awakening uh, came upon you, um, 
was something called a demographic inference engine. Um, so maybe you could explain what that is, and then we could take it from there and also talk about how that kind of stuff is being used now. Sure, yeah. So we called it a demographic inference engine because we wanted it to sound fancy and sophisticated. <laughs> really, what we did was we took data from people's Twitter and Instagram and then did some creepy machine learning stuff to figure out well, whatever we could about them. So we tried to figure out their gender, their age, um, demographic stuff, but but then also the more psychographic things. And we, we use the word psychographic, even though it you know it, we could have just said like personality or whatever, but we, we wanted to sound, you know, like it was complicated. And so we would figure out if this, like what celebrities this person liked, what brands, um, maybe their political orientation, their hobbies, anything we could figure out about them just based on the way they use social media and who their friends were. And, you know, it, when I describe it, it sounds incredibly creepy, right? And, and it was. But at the same time, I mean, this is something where all the other companies in our space were doing it or trying to do it. And so because we were in this environment where what we were doing had become so normalized. And in fact, it was something that we were all competing to do. It didn't really feel that creepy in that environment. And so I went in just incredibly naive, like straight out of straight out of college, not really know, knowing much about the industry or the world and just thinking, okay, I guess if everybody else is doing this, then it's fine. Um, and you know what you're saying just now about um, going in and expecting to be able to change things. I think that is something a lot of people going into the industry think they can do without recognizing the degree to which the industry is predicated on suppressing people's desire to change things for the better, right? Because there is a certain moral framework that's often invisible to the people who are just entering the industry. If I, you know, if I had known better, I probably would have been like, oh, this seems kind of wrong, but I just didn't know better. Right. And also the thing is, even if I had known it was wrong, what could I have done? Either I stopped doing it, in which case someone else just does it, Right. Or I just keep doing it thinking, oh, I can make this more ethical than others. And, you know, how do I do that? The the market incentives are in the wrong direction. I'm just going to have to do stuff that's more and more creepy. So, yeah, I, I think just the the use case that we came up with um, is, is one that turned out to be incredibly just weird and immoral. But it came out of a very innocuous uh, purpose originally because I'd been working in a computer science lab at my university where we... We did, we just like did stuff with data, mostly social data. And, you know, we would use like whatever kind of data sets we had around and just like apply machine learning techniques to figure out what we could about, about people. And it, at the time, it just seemed like fun research. You know, I would go to conferences and present my research at like Stanford and uh, Trinity College and whatever. And everyone was like, oh, this is so cool. And so, you know, you have this kind of <laughs> academia uh -huh. to industry pipeline, which just because like academia just seemed like this, you know, really nice, friendly thing. Because I think partly because of that, it was hard for me to see it as a problem. Because it was like, you know, in, if if um if universities are doing it, if researchers are doing it, then it can't actually be that bad either. So it was just all these things that kind of together made me right. think that it was more ethical than it was. Well, I think you also point out really well that like, you know, what <laughs> since it's all developing in a bubble, um, you know, who would you have even had those conversations with? So it's like, if you see it one way and then you enter into it and then everybody around you is having a certain kind of conversation that, you know, is aimed at things that um, maybe they look a little bit like ethics or, or something, but rather, but, but probably from the way you describe it, we're more like, I've got to achieve, I've got to succeed. I've got to get to this certain point and be this kind of 
developer or coder, whatever role I fulfill, I've got to get to this certain station. And that's kind of the driving force. And those were probably the conversations that were leading everybody through this thing. So I don't even know who you would have talked to at that point. So, you know, but it, but you did start to have a kind of bubbling up of awareness about it as well. So that's interesting to me. And I don't know, like the kinds of conversations you have that would have you know, at, at many points along the way that would have extracted you from just being kind of uh, in the flow that didn't allow you to see what was going on. You know? Yeah. And I think part of the the problem with that bubble is that almost by its very definition, if someone had come out and said, this is unethical, I would have just ignored them. I would have been like, oh, they just don't understand what we're doing. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, the, the entirety of this kind of uh, startup mentality that I've internalized it just completely elided any discussion of ethics. It was all about what you can achieve if you're if you're ambitious, if you're ruthless, if you're capable. And so anyone who did not buy into that would just seem to me like they didn't understand what was happening. Like, you know, they were just out, oh, they're not worth listening to. And so it's very possible that, you know, investors or advisors or people had come up to us and been like, I don't think what you're doing is right. But we would have just ignored them, probably would have forgotten because you know, it's, you only really care about the people who tell you to keep going. So yeah, I think, and I also think it's hard in the industry for anyone to say that because you don't want to burn bridges. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to be the one telling this, um, you know, hot young startup that what they're doing is wrong because what if they become a billion dollar company and then you don't get an investment because they might, a lot of startups that have deeply unethical business models have gone on to be very successful. And so I think there's this kind of, um, skewing of ethics within the, within this bubble because there's this um, prizing of ambition and ruthlessness and achievement at all costs. And so like, it's very hard for anyone to even say what you're doing might be wrong. Right. Well, I think, it, I think it's also like a lot of the things that were going on in tech for years and definitely up to at least 2015 um, people thought that they were responding to the ills of the world that was a more, I mean, for lack of a better term, like analog world. Like people were like, well, you know, newspapers suck because of the centralized uh, nature of the news. So we're going to change that. And the production of art really sucks because certain people have the, you know, power to determine who gets access to even learning how to make music, getting their music out there, getting their presence out there as, you know, someone who's giving an instructional video or whatever. And so I think that people... Um, really, they, first of all, they were doing good in some ways, but they thought that they were responding to the way the world used to work. And also, I think in general, um, if I can use (laughs) the term evil with you, it's like when, when we, everything that's going to be good for us in the challenges of our time appears evil at first. So you could have been in that mindset too, like, oh, well, you just think I'm bad because I'm new. You know, you just think that I'm bad because the solutions that we're coming up with are dealing with ills that we were stuck in before, and you want that old world. I don't know if that matches your experience or, or some of the things that you were hearing or some of the conversations that allowed you to keep certain people out or these ethical discussions out. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. That That is, you know, a very, very powerful and um, common mentality among venture capitalists and, you know, other thought leaders in that space. Because, and, and, you know, for, you can kind of understand why, because for mm-hmm. them, they probably did have to overcome quite a few hurdles to get to the point where they were. But then, you know, it's a case of just looking at their own success and projecting that to everyone without recognizing that maybe they did not actually deserve 
that much success or also that doesn't, it doesn't work for everyone. Um, and I, and I, and I really like your comparison to, um, you know, the, the analog old worlds. I think I definitely thought about that a lot. I really thought like all of these systems that are bad, it's just because they weren't made by engineers uh, who are thinking from first principles and trying to design things so that they're efficient. And it's like, yeah, you know, there are some cases where that's true, but that is one component. And there are all these other components, which I, as this software engineer who had never studied humanities, just had no clue of, because I, I really thought I knew everything. I clearly didn't. And I think this is something that you can see in a lot of um, these tech approaches to things where you have someone who, because they have this kind of startup mindset or a technical mindset, they think that they have identified all of the problems and that they're able to fix it. What they don't realize is they're identifying, you know, one small sliver of the problems and that by applying the fix that they've come up with, they might actually make the problem worse. Uh, And, you know, you can't, again, you can't really blame them because this is just kind of, this is what they're taught is right. This is what, this is what the startup, um, ideology is is all about and they're just kind of doing what more successful people have done to great effect and so i feel really bad for anyone who enters into this um you know this just startup um microcosm thinking that what they're doing is actually the right way of doing things and it's like the right way to look at the world when really it's just such a narrow and um i don't know just toxic way of looking at things and they just don't necessarily know it because no one has told them and you know if someone did tell them they wouldn't listen and that's that's a huge problem because i think a lot of potential is being wasted you have these people who could probably create you know great things if they were in the right environment and they were surrounded by the right people but they're not they're in this really kind of just depressing treadmill of just like this startup ladder where they just keep trying to climb up and there's really nothing at the top of it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's, you know, just to let you off the hook and those a lot of people off the hook a bit, you know, like my friend Doug Rushkoff, like years ago was writing about, you know, how the internet was going to revolutionize everything and we were going to live in a new world, which in fact it did, but it was very, you know, um, rose colored glasses. Right. And so you know, then years later, he's writing a book called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, you know? <laughs> so yeah. Oh, like, I, I love that book. Yeah. Right. I, I read it and I was like, wow, what a great title. <laughs> right, right. Right. And so, I mean, I think even people who have like a broad, like are t- attached to the humanities or have sort of a broader view of things, they can get, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't exactly know what the, I mean, I would have to ask Doug himself, but like, I don't exactly know the problem um, where it's like, well, I just didn't see exactly the ways that this could be misused and all that sort of stuff. But I think you're, it, it is good to point out that people have this sliver. Like right now with, you know, um, with the global crisis and everything, you have people who are <laughs> basically saying that epidemiologists and virologists should determine whether what kinds of protests are okay, right? Like I think that that's crazy. Like the way that we turn to experts as if they're systems thinkers, and most people are not systems thinkers. Most people have a rather blinkered way of approaching things. And Mm. it's not wrong that you become, you know, an expert in a certain field. But like you said, if the humanities aren't incorporated, then the forward motion of your expertise will just be what kind of carries you away. And it sounds like that's what was happening. But you had your own kind of awakening. And I think the rest of the 
world is at least starting to have some kind of awakening to it. And I don't know if you, like, how does, how did that happen? Like, how did people start thinking, well, tech is a problem. Like that's yeah. changed. I mean, the, the only way I can really answer that question is to just like gesture vaguely at everything around us. <laughs> uh, because I think, you know, we're all seeing the same thing. And um, part of what I try to talk about in my book is how the the rising tech worker organizing movement has really inspired me because, you know, maybe two years ago, I didn't really know much about tech work mm. organizing. It wasn't a thing I really thought about. I wasn't very familiar with it. It certainly didn't strike me as a source of, you know, creative inspiration or anything. But then I started paying attention to what was happening at Google and um, all these other companies where workers were just making demands in this really novel, the way that felt novel for me in the industry. But, you know, definitely drawing on centuries of labor labor history and i thought wow there's something there's something new and interesting there and you know i think all these workers they were just they were paying attention to the world around them and i'm sure some of them have had qualms with their employers for a while but they maybe just didn't feel like it was the right time to express it and you know i think the fact that all this stuff is happening around the same time is just it's symptomatic of how messed up the world has gotten and how difficult it has become to deny it. Because if you live in like the Bay Area and you look around and you see just how many homeless people there are in a city that has so many billionaires, you see, you know, the fact that it's, um, you look at like the, the median wage, right? Or you look at, you look at any sort of economic statistics and then you just recognize like, oh, there's, there's something weird going on here. And, not everyone's happy about it. And, you know, like right now, if you look around the world, you look at how many people are coming out to protest police brutality and racism. And it's like, well, clearly things aren't working as well as we may, maybe we thought they should be by now. It's not this, you know, the proverbial end of history after all. And so I think it's, it's actually very hard for anyone to just completely deny the, um, this weird moment that we're in to just completely shut it off and instead focus on their like enterprise software startup or whatever they're doing. So I think, yeah, I think, you know, we're just living through a weird time. We're living through a time where a lot is changing and a lot of people are expressing their, their discontent with the status quo. And so, you know, the, the fact that there are all these people in the industry and outside who are kind of turning on the industry, I think it's perfectly reasonable. And I think it's, you know, about time I've, I've been just like reading as many books as I can that are about tech industry criticism um, from the last, like, you know, 10, 20 years. And, and there have been people writing about these things for a very long time. It's just no one was really listening to them. Um, but I think now we're at a point where because the tech companies are just so massive and it's so clear at this point that they're not they're not just these upstarts. They're not these underdogs trying to do something amazing. They're part of the system. They're entrenched. You know, Google, whatever, they're all taking money from, um, you know, U.S. military, ICE, police, whatever, they're, they're getting money from wherever they can. They're integrating themselves into the larger system. And when you recognize that the system as a whole is broken and it's not, it, it's not something that's designed to serve the vast majority of people, that's when you kind of like, it's very hard to escape the conclusion that the tech industry itself is not a force for good. That is in fact become part of the problem. Well, I mean, I think, so all that's really well said and you I mean, your book is called Abolish Silicon Valley, right? So it's not, I mean, I think like one of the things that was a little bit of the problem is actually, uh, let me try to say this delicately, but like some of the, some of the revelations about inequality within, um, within tech, whether it was some of the scandals that came out at Google or whatever, uh, 
you know, um, harassment and that sort of thing. They have, they were important, but they also had a way of deflecting from actually questioning the entirety, right? And mm. you go into it, but you, uh, you know, you're like, but this isn't it. It's like, it's much bigger than this. And I think, you know, something that really, something that's really struck me in the past few years, but especially after talking to this guy, Mark O'Connell on the show, he wrote this great book called notes from an apocalypse. Um, and he also wrote a book called how to be a machine, which is great. And it's about AI. And then it's Peter Thiel is in both his books. <laughs> yeah. Those, those so, books are both on my list. They, oh, they're, yeah, I, I've heard him talk. They sound great. Yeah. They're, they're great books. And, but one of the things is like that, was revealed to me from reading Mark's work and also his stuff on Peter Thiel is like, it seems like there's actually something bad embedded within tech itself. So we can in some ways, um, and we should shift the lens to uh, when appropriate uh, struggles that have to do with identity, labor policy, all that kind of stuff within tech. But in some ways I feel that those are critiques of, just overarching structures of capitalism, of patriarchy, of racism, all that. But actually, it seems to me that maybe in tech itself, there's a bad impulse that like somehow even abstracted as if that's possible, but abstracted from all those other cultural currents and forces. There is some kind of problem in that that is unique to tech um, that's in there. And I don't know if you've identified that or, or seen that, but it was something that when I was reading about Pierre de Thiel saying like, well, we want to be, you know, these, we want to be elites and uh, we want to be the ones that run the government and all that. And we know how, because we had tech companies and then having products that actually are, you know, end up being quite dehumanizing and all that. I started sort of, and I haven't quite articulated it yet, but I've started to notice maybe there's something and not to be a Luddite about it, but maybe there's something in it itself. That's a problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I, 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 I have been thinking about this, to, I don't know if I've quite articulated it either, but there's something about technology that um, when when you have it and someone else doesn't really have the same know-how or skills, then you have power over them. Mm-hmm. And I think about this in you know the very mundane cases where I'm like helping someone with tech support. I have fixed their website or whatever. And they're just like, wow, how did you do that? And it's like, that is power. And if I were if I were not a good person, I could just use that power to just to mess with people. I could use it to, I don't know, surveil them, to you know, do whatever I wanted. And like, they just wouldn't even know because uh, by virtue of having this technical know-how, I I have a kind of power over them through the devices they use or or whatever systems they have. And I think that's something where um, that is inherent to the, the knowledge differential between you and, you know, someone else. And this is something that maybe we could think of it as inherited technology. Maybe it's just about the differential, but either way, that is itself a problem. And I think, um, this is this kind of, uh, it's like the seed that from which the entire Silicon Valley ideology sprouts. Because, you know, if you, if you have the power to build technology on a small scale, then you can build it on a large scale. You'd scale it up. It could be this billion dollar company and then you could surveil people and do whatever you want. And of course, the kind of business model that you'll adopt with the technology that you have will depend on the, you know, larger political economic terrain. And so if we're in a system where labor is weak and you have a very militarized uh, geopolitical order, you have the you know United States and its massive military, then your business model will probably have something to do with surveilling workers or mm-hmm. militarizing the border or just doing something that is about 
you know, violating the rights of certain people so that the powerful can remain powerful. And I think that's something where that part, that's not the technology, but that is the natural course mm. that technology will take in a system where that's just so skewed and just so, so broken. At the same time, I think there are other systems where even though you might have this power imbalance for a while, if you have enough widespread technical education, if you have a good, you know, reasonable degree of economic democracy and egalitarianism, then maybe you wouldn't have these problems um, on this large scale. Maybe you'd still have these problems. People would still like, you know, play pranks on each other or whatever. But if you don't have a system <laughs> that allows people to create trillion dollar companies just by having like a little bit of technology, then I think you can alleviate some of the worst um issues that might occur. So yeah, I, I think, I think we, you know, that's a good point about there's something, something inherently problematic in technology, but I, I also think that the worst excesses could be dampened if you had like a humane socioeconomic system, which is unfortunately not what we have right now. Right. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying like um, that we couldn't come up with a better version, right? Like, but I'm just now, you know, when you're talking about fixing someone's website, I'm sort of thinking, okay, well, you know, everybody talks about like literacy um, with like coding and everything. And I remember when I, when, <laughs> when I was a freshman in college, there was a computer lab. I didn't have a laptop and I went into the computer lab and this was how I spent my time with the computer. I was teaching myself HTML to make a GeoCities website. And my GeoCities website was pictures of famous guys I thought were hot with like little <laughs> descriptions of them. <laughs> right. But I remember that I remember HTML, you know, and I think that like, you know, to, to some extent, and I think that, you know, what you're talking about, there's, there's a language issue, right. But it's also like, is there something about that language that itself is like, it, it in some ways it's kind of like a bad language. Mm -hmm. um, so the language is keeping, the language is keeping people out. But it's also interesting to me that, you know, if you talk to someone about reading like Deleuze or, you know, Derrida or something, people are like, oh, that language is just too hard. It's too convoluted. Mm. It's too, but they'll type A space H-R-E-F, like, <laughs> like whatever. And like, they'll have like infinite patience for learning this complete like jumble of bizarro symbols and signs, you know, to make a picture of like a bowling ball on a computer screen or something, you know? And so it, there's, there's something weird about that too, that like the, like we talk about language as if it's, um, like obfuscating when it comes to theory and it relates to the humanities or philosophy or something like that. But then when it comes to this somehow, and I, and I think it's maybe like there's something problematic about the uniformity of the language that is at once uniform, but completely asymmetrical in its distribution. So people don't know it. Um, and there's also nothing like human or living in it in a way. I realize a lot of people who like, uh, your work are probably listening to me and being like, what the, he has no idea what the hell he's talking about. And of course it's living and there's something beautiful and flowing and changeable about it. But I think you can see what I'm getting at by, by bringing that up. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that the way I think about, you know, coding languages as opposed to say like, you know, obscure French theory is that the difference is that it's easier to test and it's easier to like piece it together mm. on your own and because you can test it. Right. Whereas it's hard to test if you've, correctly interpreted a sentence from a thousand plateaus uh -huh. there's just like you have to ask someone else and then they might be wrong too and so with with computers the good thing is that you have this ability to you know have feedback on your work in real time and it doesn't work necessarily for everyone and it really depends on the language and stuff but 
like for me, I think I just, I've always just kind of been like, I don't know, not necessarily great at talking to other people and, you know, just like asking people for help. And so what was really appealing for me about coding when I was young is that I could just do this on my own time and not involve anyone else. And it would just be me learning at my own pace. And that's something that I, you know, I still find difficult to do with theory because a lot of that involves like cross-referencing, seeing what other people think about it. Whereas with code, you can just, you know, you type it in. Is it right? Uh Is it wrong? Is it giving the results you want? Do do you have an error? There's so much more um, of a feedback cycle and you can feel like you're actually teaching yourself. So I think that there is like something a little bit different because they're, they're trying to achieve different things. Like, you know, human language is trying to communicate ideas to you with code. You're just trying to tell the computer, do this or do that. Um, and you can kind of know if it does it or if it doesn't. <laughs> well, yeah, but I guess that maybe that's part of what I'm indicating is like in, in, when you're, when you're coding, the, the, the device is uh, substituting for your confidence. Mm-hmm. So if I read Deleuze, like, and I have to, I don't know, I keep bringing up Deleuze, like, but it's like, well, I guess I do because he's, he can be seen as difficult. But like, if I read Deleuze and I have to supply my own um, confidence and integrity to my interpretation. So there's nothing giving that back to me. So it's actually a completely, it's like a complete and recursive process and I can open it up to other people, but still I have to sort of present it. But right. Like with, when you type the, when you type the code in and you get the result or you get an image or whatever it is, that is, uh, it's, it's taking part of it. I don't want to say it's taken away from you because I'm, I don't have a totally negative view of these things. And I think I'm presenting as if I do, but it's, it's taking this, the space up for you in a way. Mm. And it's doing part of the work for you that, it, in other languages and other uh, responses to things that are difficult um, to understand, you, you would have to do that inner work yourself, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I see what you mean. I think um, something that I do feel and notice a lot when I'm reading theory or even reading fiction or anything that's, you know, more artistic is that there there's always the space for confusion where you're you know Mm. where things aren't fully determined and you're not quite sure like there's so many ways of interpreting any good work of art right and so I think there you have to be kind of okay with that um the fact that it's not wholly determined that's not rigid and that there's this fluidity whereas with code I mean you're supposed to know what's going on like if you don't that's a problem any Mm. any confusion is bad you do not want a line of code where you're like I'm not really sure if this you know, does what it's supposed to do or not. That's just, that's a problem. And so I think it's a very different way of looking at the world. And that is trying to boil things down into these, you know, discrete chunks that can be easily understood and that have to be understood. So I think there's, yeah, a different kind of just approach to understanding and language. Right. So there is, there is a way in which it's like, uh, it's, Limiting sub, limiting the presentation of subjectivity in some sense, right? Although I suppose there are different kinds of uh, there are different kinds of ways of coding that could that that lean more towards subjectivity than others. Whereas, I'm, like I'm saying, subjectivity because I would say, like uh, there's this guy Owen Barfield and his his idea of language is that there's always a tension between um, exact language and subjective experience. And mostly we enter into exact language to communicate with each other, but could we, what would be benefited from leaning more into um, subjective experience, which diminishes every time you use the words that everybody else is using. Right. And so um, I think that there's a way in which that, uh, 
Yeah, in which which the demand for exact language that most people don't know, <laughs> which is also building the structures that are around everybody and forming the world, you know, even though most people don't know it. So it's it's like creating some alternate dimension that everybody's forced to live in. It's really weird. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think that is unfortunately what we're seeing now. And you know, maybe there was a time a couple of decades ago, maybe a decade ago, when it was it was easy to have a very optimistic view of technology and assuming mm. that, you know, everyone would become technologically literate. And so we would just empower everybody with all these tools. And instead what we're seeing is that, you know, the, the world doesn't work like that. It's, it's not this egalitarian place from the outset. And so you're going to end up with this kind of, um, I don't know, high hierarchy where you have the people who are either able to um, build stuff with code or just are able to, uh, somehow take credit for the people who do, like, you know, as CEOs or managers, whatever. And then everybody else who is just, you know, eventually working for one of these companies as an independent contractor and just not getting benefits or anything. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, a few years ago, it probably made sense for certain people to be optimistic about what was going to happen when um, the the kind of information technology that we have was just proliferating everywhere. At the time, it probably made sense if you, you know, had a very optimistic view of the world. Now it's hard to retain that optimism because we're, we're seeing what happens when this technology spreads under capitalism, under this like incredibly unequal and I don't know, just, just awful kind of system (laughs) that we have. Um, And so, yeah, I, you know, I, there's a part of me that still wants to be really optimistic because I just, I remember what it was like to first discover code and just think this is so freeing. This is so liberating. I I just personally felt so powerful and um, so free, but then, you know, there's a dark side of that too. And I think the dark side is what we're seeing now. Like we're, we're just like living in, the in the dark side of technology and it's like where are we ever going to get out of it please right well well we should we'll definitely talk about how to get out of it but i mean i love yeah i mean my my geocities website of hot famous guys was definitely like it felt like utopia for me yes. <laughs> like i get to just learn how to do this you know it was really but i think um but yeah i mean i think that transformation of hope you know into a kind of <laughs> hell has been sort of gradual and people have been, you know, and now, now that gradual accumulation is like really in our faces. I mean, I think you had people, you know, what is it, like Sherry Turkle and people like that who were writing about these problems all along and Doug Rushkoff mm-hmm. writing along about some of the problems that could be present all along. But a lot of them felt really unsatisfactory. Like a lot of them were like, social media is going to ruin your life and why you shouldn't be on social media. But it didn't ever really seem to get to the heart of it for me in a way that you know, connected. And then, you know, you start noticing, like in the, in the global crisis with the pandemic and everything, I was really noticing how these things that people were saying were new to the conditions that we were in as regulations just mirrored what we were doing before, like social distancing. I was like, you know, for the past five years of my life, I would go to a cafe with my laptop and sit down and write, uh, like, a meter or more away from the person next to me and we would never interact. Like (laughs) that was fine. Like sure. I got closer to the person behind the counter, but like I was social distancing then I was, you know, people were, people ghost each other. Like there's, there's a kind of distancing there and a kind of like insularity. There was, you know, people just bumping into you when you were walking down the street as if you weren't there. So like I was, you know, looking at their phones. So I would see like all these kinds of, um, 
the preparation or the sort of rollout of the regulations long before the regulations happened. But I couldn't intuit it until we are forced into that by a political apparatus and a public health apparatus for, you know, better or for worse. And, and then I was like, oh, that's actually what's been going on all along. So I think some of these kinds of awakenings are, I mean, they're all still unfolding, right? So we, we can, we can all say like, well, we all kind of have a bad feeling about tech now because Jeff Bezos is an asshole. But, <laughs> but I think that a lot of it, a lot of the sort of contours of that awakening are just com- still unfolding every day. And especially with our current situation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think, you know, unfortunately things are, things are going to have to get a lot worse before they get better. That's kind of my intuition right now. And I would love to be wrong. I don't think, I don't think I am. <laughs> um, yeah. And just like looking around and seeing what the pandemic uh, has done to, you know, especially this country, but just so many other places that don't don't have their don't, like haven't figured out how to respond to something of this nature. It's it's just you know I think it's almost cliche by now to say that the pandemic is laying bare the inequities that are already present. And, but it's not just doing that; it's also deepening some of them, and it's going to serve as an excuse, I think, for things to get worse. Um, because something that's been happening here in, in the tech industry is that you have all these companies laying off their workers and saying, you know, now that we're all remote we're just probably going to do more outsourcing. And they're saying like, well, if you want to leave the Bay Area, you can, but you have to take a wage cut. And that's just, you know, we can talk about that more, but I think that's kind of a cover. That's like an excuse to be able to do more outsourcing Mm -hmm. and paying workers less. But just by pretending that it's um, just the pandemic when I'm sure this is something that they've would have been doing all along, but now they have like a convenient way of doing it. That doesn't raise too many, too many flags, but yeah, I think we're just at the beginning of this. Um, I don't know what the world will look like in a year. If we still have a world, I think it'll probably be worse in some ways. Like I, I do try to be hopeful, but just by looking <laughs> at the, um, the way the tendencies of these like big powerful companies and the direction that they're going the fact that it's like very, very hard to actually actively resist them, I think things will have to get worse for a while because I also don't think um, the the structures of resistance are quite there yet. And I'm so inspired by all these protests, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like that, this is the beginning. You know, I don't think we're seeing the end of the protests either. And I think there's still a long way for that to go before we get to the point where the people in positions of power actually feel threatened and are actually willing to make meaningful concessions. Just because, well, you know, we're, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 no. Well, no, I mean, I was just thinking like, you know, the protests, like so much is so much of the rebellion against tech is like it just tapping into the the kinetic energy that's been generated through repression and oppression. So like, I mean, (laughs) when you were talking about your job before, I was just thinking, you know, I knew someone who worked for Google and YouTube for a long time and he did nothing. Like he sat at his desk all day and did fucking nothing and got paid six figures for it. Right. And he was just like, there's so many of me here, but the, the reason they do that is so we can't work anywhere else. And so like, they're just corrals, which I, and I can't leave because I've got this great healthcare plan and I've got this, you know, and I eat Kashi, you know, peace flakes every day um, from, you know, cafeteria, right. So like, I think like even, even the hiring apparatus works on a principle of repression and like keeping people corralled in some way. And so I think a lot of the things that will show up as resistance to tech 
you know, I mean, even Zoom, like what we're doing now in some ways is a form of repression. Like I would view it as libidinal repression if I want to talk about it in a psychoanalytic way, where like we're not, I mean, we are interacting, but there's part of us that's actually just sort of subtracted from the equation here. I mean, it's just, it's true with telephones too, but to like, I don't know, to a lesser extent or to a greater extent, I'm not sure. But like with all tech, like it creates this kind of... um yeah, this kind of block for the way we would normally express ourselves. And I think, you know, <laughs> like anything, you know, just people taking pictures of every fucking thing they see on their phone is a way of repressing experience. I was thinking about people with OnlyFans and how I made a joke, like how many people have OnlyFans just because they can't put their phones down during sex, you know? And like, I think that, you know, I think that there's this idea that I worry about of people sort of mediating the world through their repression. And that's basically what tech is. But so when you see these upwelling responses of protest, it's like, whoa, that's the return of the repressed, you know, that's the, and especially after months of quarantine, I mean, it's that real flourish and fluorescence that can't be denied. And it, it, I don't know. I mean, there are some pretty brutal regimes that keep it sort of, uh, you know, like beaten down for a really long time, but I don't think that that can ever actually be denied. So it's difficult though, as you point out to see how people will actually be able to do that more or sustain it and, um, and find new ways to, unrepress and unoppress, you know, uh, mm. against, against this sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, to your point, I've just been reading, um, JG Ballard's collection of short stories called myths of the near future. Uh-huh. And oh my God, I think I, I actually found it because, um, Mark O'Connell oh, had yeah. a review of it in <laughs> yeah. the new statesman. And I, I never read any ballad before. And, and so I was like, I'm okay. I don't know what to expect. Oh my God. This guy was so, he was just so negative about everything in a way that seems very reasonable, <laughs> but like uh-huh. he has all these stories that just seem so prescient right now, you know, during our pandemic and we're on screens all the time. Mm. Um, he had the story where people only communicated with each other through, essentially through screens and, you know, they never even met in person. And then when they do meet in person, they just start to kill each other because they can't take it. <laughs> and, you know, that's like obviously a very pessimistic way of viewing uh, things, but I think he, he was getting into something about um, what these technologies are doing to us and, and how they are, they're pretty damaging. And yeah. And I think I would definitely recommend anyone who wants a little dose of like just eerie, weird, um, I don't know, just like a, like a bit of depression in a book. Just read, read Ballard, read Myths of the Near Future because it's so <laughs> relevant. It's it's a very hard thing to read, but he's just such an amazing writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point about um, you know someone at Google not feeling like they can quit because they have a six figure salary, they have all the the trappings of success. I think what what that gets to what that gets at to me is the fact that um, resisting in the tech industry as like a white collar uh, software engineer or whatever is is very much against the grain. And it feels wrong. I think it's just, it's very hard to do because the entire, I don't know, ideological apparatus of capitalism is about telling people to, uh, you know, succeed and work hard and just be upwardly mobile and like keep working until you have, uh, I don't know, $10 million or whatever, just like keep making money, keep climbing the career ladder. And I think that's a very difficult route to reject, especially if you've been brought up to believe in meritocracy and like if you have parents who... Um, believe in it too and who are like kind of forcing you to just get good grades and whatever definitely for me I, it was something that I really internalized just because because my childhood 
And, and yeah, and I think when you grow older and you look around in the world and you're like, oh, wow, this whole meritocracy, upward mobility thing, it's all just like morally bankrupt. This is just, you're not going to be happy at the end of it. And you're going to have to climb over so many people, both directly and indirectly on your way to the top, that it just feels hollow. You look around, you're like, that's, that's an awful realization, but then you just don't really see any paths to realizing that, to like actually to enact that realization, to do something about it. And so it's just so easy for people to be like, eh, whatever, I just won't think about it, which is kind of this realization that I had some, you know, sometimes through midway through my startup, I was thinking this sucks. Like the people who are success, successful in this industry, I don't want their lives. They just seem like, I don't know, their lives don't seem meaningful to me. I don't want to, to do that, even though theoretically this is what I'm working towards. But I fought really hard to suppress that because if I didn't, if I didn't have this vision of someone who was, I was trying to become, if I wasn't trying to become successful, then what the hell was I doing? And so I was just, you know, like, I don't want to think about it too much. I'll just keep working on whatever I'm working on. And hopefully, eventually, magically, it'll all just become meaningful, which of course it didn't because there was no path for it to become meaningful. And then I had to kind of take this weird path where I was like, everything I've worked so hard for, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I took the mm -hmm. wrong path. And it not isn't necessarily my fault. It's just that the world that I'm in does not provide, you know, an, an easy, accessible path for me to take my technical skills and use them in a way that is both like economically um, lucrative and, you know, just like revered by society and also good for the world. Because I think like in the tech industry, there's this kind of myth that you have, you can have it all, that you can work on something that is making the world a better place while also getting paid a lot of money. And it's like, what a, what a nice dream. Don't we all want that? But maybe, you know, maybe there's something like inherently immoral about being paid a lot of money in a society where so many people are still struggling to get by. I think that's like a realization that I started to have sometime around uh, my internship at Google when I was, you know, working in Google San Francisco and I would walk past homeless people on my way to work where I was making, um, like, I don't know, $7,000 a month or something just as an intern. And I had all my housing and food paid for. And there's a part of me that thought, well, there's maybe something immoral about this. The fact that I'm making so much money for doing really nothing. Whereas all these other people are struggling in a city, that, you know, that is just clearly not made for them. And I thought, well, there's something wrong about this. But also, if I pursue this thought too much further, then I'll just be paralyzed and I just won't know what to do. <laughs> right. So I, I just didn't think about it. And I think the problem is that the, the kind of like dominant culture in the industry makes it really hard to talk about this stuff because then you're just, you know, you're just seen as this like weird rebel and it's, it's just weird. People don't, people, your boss does not want to hear you talk about how you think your job is immoral. So I think it's, it, there aren't that many spaces where it's okay to talk about it. Maybe like, you know, people can talk to their friends about it, but then even then it's just, it's kind of, it's like looked down upon to be, you know, very, negative about your company and about what your company is doing to the world and about your own place within it. So I think it's like, um, it feels like lately there've been more of these conversations happening, which is great, but there's still definitely within a lot of these bigger companies. It's like, you, you can't say that publicly. You just, people would swarm you, you get fired or you just feel really uncomfortable. So I think there's still, still like a really long way to go. Well, I mean, I think that that's one of the main functions I see your book as serving, which is, uh, there's there's lots of them, but I think one of them is like, okay, I'm going to open up the space for this conversation to actually happen. And like, it is in some ways a book that is about forgiveness, 
Um, but, but, but the kind of forgiveness that happens after someone takes accountability, right. Which is a different kind of forgiveness than just like, well, it's all okay. Like, don't worry, you're fine. Like, which is also <laughs> can be a very San Francisco kind of forgiveness, which is like, yeah, I killed somebody the other day, but my therapist says it's just all part of my process, you know, but like, <laughs> you, it really is like taking stock and then saying, okay, I'm in this system. Now, what do I do? How do I extract myself to the extent that I can? How do I recognize the forces that brought me here and talk about them so other people can? I mean, when I was in San Francisco, so from 2007 to 2013, I mean, I was only doing sex work at the time, basically. That was my only job. But I would walk around, you know, I'd be like coming home from work, either doing a scene or seeing a client. And I would just, I would cry because of mm -hmm. homeless people everywhere. Mm -hmm. I would just, yep. and not to, <laughs> you know, not to dramatize like my lot of crying, but that was, mm -hmm. it was so emotionally affecting to me. And that was like, what you know, one of my roles for sex work was that I'd always, as I was leaving, would always give money to somebody. But of course that doesn't, you know, listen, not going to solve the structural problem, but it was so, it is so intense in that place and um you know the disparity is so intense there and i also think that like <laughs> some of the things you're talking about with um okay so these are the capitalists this is the capitalism motion and the incentive that's given i do worry that now that there's a kind of rising marxist socialist or at least democratic socialist consciousness in the u.s that what will happen is like tech will shift to align itself with those with seemingly leftist projects so um i'm about to get really dark so let's just do, <laughs> do this a clear way out but like you know for instance like medicare for all being linked to ai healthcare at home which determines like um well you can only get this kind of medicine you can only get this kind of treatment and basically we're also doing biometric you know data constantly for you to be able to access these systems or even something like universal basic income being linked to credit that's only used only usable on certain sites so it's still always generated and also having those sites directing images to you being punished for something like <laughs> and having your ubi docked and and also you know the data gathering that will constantly happen from having digital currency linked to um shopping sites and commerce and and consumerism in a way that just turns us all into workers. So it's not actually UBI. It's uh, money that we're getting paid to work, whether we think we're working or not, because we're just providing data. Um, or, I mean, <laughs> I could go on and on, but like, I just think that these are some of the examples that I worry about where, yes, there are the capitalist incentives, but now as we sort of shift into this kind of global awareness of some of the problems with that, or at least awareness in the US, that it will just find its niche in socialist uh, or democratic socialist initiatives. Um, so, yeah, let's <laughs> let, yeah, let, yeah. Let, let talk about that for a bit. Yeah, yeah I, I see. I see what you're saying. I think um, for me, my my personal political journey over the last you know two or three years has been that I definitely started out thinking that oh, we just need a UBI. We just need like. Or, or a broader welfare state or something. We need, obviously we need like, you know, a better healthcare system and we just have to have the state take on more features. And, you mm -hmm. know, at the time, like I, so I was living in London around the time of the 
2017 general election, I think I moved there right after the election, and everyone was really excited about the possibility of the Labour Party eventually coming into office. And so I think I, because I was there, I was just thinking mostly about the Labour Party and all their policies. And over the next couple of years, I started focusing more on labor and labor mm-hmm. organizing, the possibility of worker control and how that's not quite the same as, you know, the state creating something necessarily. Like it, it could be, it doesn't have to be. And so I think now my perspective is a little more nuanced and it's more like, it's not just that we need like the government to take over technology, it's that we need technology that's more accountable to the people it's supposed mm-hmm. to serve. Mm-hmm. And so the use case you mentioned of AI, like telemedicine, essentially, I think that, you know, depends on, is that a good thing or not? We'd have to get the input of everyone involved from doctors, nurses, to, you know, the people who are getting the care. And it might be that this is not actually ideal. And I, I would suspect that a lot of doctors don't necessarily want to do that in in all yeah. cases. And if that's the case, then, you know, we just need to get their feedback and their feedback has to be prioritized. I think the Labour Party has a pretty good perspective on it now. They're talking a lot about, um, like, we're just having more worker input into running things. So even if you nationalize an industry, it's not about top-down nationalization. It's about bottom-up, essentially, which, you know, is, is definitely, is definitely um, really useful and I think a productive avenue to go down. At the same time, I think what I'm most interested in now is just like, how do you give workers more control over the things they produced? How do you give users of any technology more control over how the technology affects them? Overall, how do you give people more control over their lives? How do you just, you know, extend the possibility of self-determination beyond the really narrow realm of electoral politics and into just every sphere of their lives from the economy to just culture to everything. And I think that's a very hard question to answer. It's not an easy thing. It's not something that we're going to get just by the left winning an election or anything or nationalizing an industry. That to me feels like it requires a wholesale transformation in how society is structured. And it's, that's something that I don't even, I don't even know how it's going to start, but I (laughs) I do think that like, um, you know, what you're saying about, if we just try to like have the left take over the state and take over these tech companies or something that could lead to this kind of dystopia. Yeah, I agree. I think there are good ways of changing how technology is done there. You know, there are good ways of quote unquote abolishing Silicon Valley and there are, there are ways that are not necessarily so great. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think what's really important now is to identify the actual problems and figure out, you know, what is needed to solve them. And that's going to be different for everyone so the process, it's going to be a really messy process, but democracy is kind of inherently messy. You can't avoid the question of politics. This is something that I think the tech industry, just, you know, as an aside, they hate the idea of politics. They love to imagine that they're apolitical and you can just do something in this brilliant technical solution and everyone will be happy. It's like, no, it's never like that. And if you think that you've done something that's apolitical, it just means you're not asking the right people for feedback. Um, so yeah, I think there, I, I see what you mean um, about your fears. I don't think we're really close to that point yet. I think um, the we're definitely not, you know, the left is not close to capturing the state right now in the US or, or in the UK. Um, but to your point earlier about, you know, just feeling emotional and like crying, and I think that that feels like a really important point to me because this, you know, I definitely just started out just feeling really emotional about things and shutting those emotions down because I thought those Mm -hmm. emotions were weakness. And the tech industry especially is very good at making it seem like emotion or any kind of, you know, moral qualms or feeling, those are weakness. Those are not useful. What you have to do is just be ruthless, be ambitious, 
just just think about efficiency. Anything that's outside the realm of you know like hard technical data is just is meaningless. And there's a gendered component to it too, right? Like emotions are feminized. They're they're seen as just you know it's just women, just women being hysterical or whatever. And it's like I think that's something that's not just obviously it's not just about tech, but it's very very strong within tech. And I think it has to do with the fact that the tech industry is so overwhelmingly male. Um, and, and you know anyone who expresses a kind of like uh, an emotion or an impulse that's different from the the idealized male response of just doing something, just going out and building, that's derided. And that's a huge problem because I think, you know, the the core of our politics should be this like emotional impulse. It should be our morals. It should be how we feel when we look at something because that's otherwise like, what do you have? Like right. you, you have to, you have to build your politics from something like very deep that's about the way you relate to the world, the way you feel when you see someone who's suffering. If you don't have that, then you just, there's, there's really nothing there. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, it it is all like, you know, like this Ray Kurzweil, like kind of idea that's it, that is behind a lot of tech. I mean, sometimes I feel like someone like Ray Kurzweil, we should be so thankful for him because he actually kind of lays bare what is actually wanted and the actual trajectory. Like he's a real Judas to the, to the system that he promotes, you know, and it's like, okay, now we can actually imagine how bad it could get if we Mm. sort of look in on him. But I think it's, it's really interesting. So it's something that you do in your book and I've heard you talk about as well. um, Lines up with a kind of way that I try to think about how to approach structural change, which is, Considering things on a political level, considering things on an economic level, and considering things on a on a cultural level, and actually separating those out from each other to understand them, and it's in some ways just like the tripartite, like liberty, equality, fraternity, where liberty is economics, uh, equality is politics and or no sorry fraternity <laughs> that's my capitalist fraternity is economics equality is is politics and liberty is culture and so i think like like there are so many problems that separate out into these different kinds of spheres so like taking for instance elon musk who with spacex wants to and has applied to send 30,000 satellites up into the ionosphere to create a complete net of 5G around the entire planet so that you can be in Yosemite or like the west coast of Ireland and like have perfect Wi-Fi, right? That's a fucking nightmare. Like to, I, can't, I can't think of anything <laughs> worse than the, I mean, unfortunately it's Paul Krugman's term, but interruptibility of, you know, every single thing I do and like, like that's a cultural problem like that people can't that people can or cannot find the sort of uh cultural spiritual uh interpersonal developmental uh resistance to understand that that is a horrifying and terrible idea right and then you have you know these political these political dimensions of rights that take place in these companies that take place when it comes to labor concerns that take place whenever two people are interacting and have to negotiate something um and you write about that a lot and then there's also the the whole way that the economic flows happen and so i think maybe you know we can <laughs> We can turn to actually solving all the world's problems right now, you and I together about tech. Um, I'll let you lead the way and do most of the work, but um, 
<laughs> but maybe sort of taking these apart, like level by level, and you don't have to agree to my framework. You can just buck it and just you know talk about it the way that you want. But I did see you actually pulling those things apart because I don't want like a ludite solution. Um, but I do think like culturally, it's important to consider like text role in our lives and develop something that doesn't look like it looks now on a cultural level. And I don't want to just have, you know, more, more people of color in STEM or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But of course I want rights, you know, um, equal, like equal rights for everybody that is engaging in this. And I also don't want like just the economics to overwhelm and drive every single aspect of it, but I do want free flows of, uh, associative economic properties amongst, uh, amongst tech tech companies in the way that some of this stuff is flows and is, is distributed. So yeah, mm. <laughs> I'll stop there. I like That's that. I like that. I, I don't know if I have like necessarily a, a great way of thinking about it, you know, in, in those three bands, but I think that is, that is useful. Um, so I guess the, the way I see, the way I understand the problems with tech is that we have a situation where technology has become um, so so central, mm. and and so instead of technology being subordinated to what people actually need, it's like the technology becomes a thing in itself, and and so you know that definitely affects us in the cultural sphere, and where we're just all on our phones all the time, even though we hate it. And I've, I've actually I, I went to the support group in in San Francisco for people who are addicted to their phones and who hate it, and you know there are a lot of people <laughs> who are really upset about how much time we're all spending on social media in ways that we don't think are good for us, but which we feel compelled to do because these platforms are really good at that. I think it does create all sorts of cultural problems. You know, that's just like one of them. Um, and then, but I think a lot of these problems, you can also, you can trace them back to the fact that this technology, which is driven by a system that prioritizes profit over anything else is um, given the room to expand and make all of these decisions without referring to any the the people who are affected by them. And the Elon Musk satellite thing is a case in point. Not only did he not, did Elon Musk just kind of like do it without having some sort of, I don't know, plebiscite or whatever, asking people if they wanted it. It was also done in a way that negatively impacted the scientific community. You had these like astronomers saying that um, these satellites would mess up their 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 observations and you know there's not and much entomologists they can do. talking about bee, bees and all that sort of stuff as well i mean there's a lot yeah but sorry yeah cool. yeah and it's just this is something that they just don't have any control over because elon musk has the money and the social capital to be able to do essentially whatever he wants i think that you know that's that's a huge part of the problem um and so it i guess if we were th to think about it in terms of economics politics and culture the culture is the fact that you have this technology that is um, deployed in a way that, it, it, you know, without anyone else, anyone's really their consent or possibility of their feedback when they don't want to do something. Um, and then it, you have all these like tech companies kind of monopolizing cultural production, gating it, making so that you have to pay $10 a month or whatever to access anything, mm -hmm. um, and also controlling the kind of media that gets produced in the first place. And this is something that isn't unique to tech, the, you know, capitalism, has just been doing this for a while, but because the tech industry is this like ascendant arm of capital, then it is kind of becoming the just the, the locus of the problem. And then in the the political realm, it's just so hard to contest anything, right? Like we we act like we're in a democracy. What kind of democratic 
mechanisms do we have for saying that we don't like Elon Musk sending his satellites into space or that we don't like how Amazon is treating its workers? You know, at best, as consumers, maybe we can boycott things. But there, that's, again, really hard when you have companies that have become so key to infrastructure. And, and then, you know, there, that's like such a, what is it? It's such a blunt instrument of the boycott. You're just saying, mm-hmm. you know, you approve or you don't approve. And it, you could be saying all sorts of things. So it's really hard to give very discreet feedback and saying, like, this specific policy that Amazon has, as, you know, consumers, we want to get rid of it. There's just no way of doing that. What are you going to call your representative? Like, that your representative probably doesn't mm-hmm. care either. Mm-hmm. Or they already, they already are fighting about it. But there's not that much they can do either. And so I think just really- to, yeah, just to interject on that, like, I think that's something Sh- Shoshana Zuboff, like, mm-hmm. points out, like, where she's like, the companies are just doing this because the government can't, because it's actually legal for the government to do a lot of things that these companies are doing. Mm. But because they're companies, like they're actually allowed to do it. So like you're saying, call the representative and you couldn't, like they actually couldn't do anything about it. They could do something about it if the government was behind it, but because it's yeah, private yeah, companies, yeah. they can't. Oh yeah. Um, and, and to that point, um, I don't know if you saw the movie, Sorry to Bother You. I it's haven't right. seen it yet. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. So you have to see it. Okay. Also, you have to, I won't spoil it, but there's this, is, there's this great scene where, you know, the, the main character, he's seeing something pretty horrible. He learned something pretty horrible uh, about this one company. And he's like, you know, we have to stop it. We have to call our representatives. Um, and then the very next shot is of the uh, this Democratic and Republican, um, you know, these Congress people who are on stage shaking hands with the, the CEO uh-huh. and just being like, what a great job. The stock market uh-huh. is going up. And it's like, yeah, you know. Does your representative really care? Is your representative an agent of capital? I mean, I live in San Francisco. This is where Nancy Pelosi <laughs> lives. Uh-huh. She is worth so much money. No one even knows how much money she's worth. It's like some some number. Her of refrigerator alone is fifty thousand oh dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like the to think that someone like that actually cares about representing their constituents is you know just like it's a little too optimistic for my liking. I don't yeah. really think that people like that actually care. But I mean, to, to, to go back to the, what I was saying, it's like you have the cultural, the political and the economic sphere. And I think the economic and the political are just very entwined at this point, because right. when you have, you know, so, so many economic resources being hoarded by a small number of people, then you have just a very skewed political system. And then whatever we would think of as the avenues for political contestation are all closed off. Um, and, and so it, it also means that you have this just, really horrific gaping economic inequality that itself is preventing people from just being able to live their lives in in a way that they in a meaningful way and you have all these artificial limitations what people are able to do because there's like you know housing is is apparently scarce or like you have to pay a certain amount of money just to be able to access housing and i think it's easy when you're in immersed in this world to forget just how messed up that is that like if you don't have a certain amount of money, you just have to sleep on the street and that itself might be criminalized. And it's like that, that's completely messed up. Like that is not something that we should take for granted as this normal thing in society. We have enough housing for everyone. We could build more housing if we wanted to. It's the fact that we don't is really just like a massive travesty and it's just an indictment of how broken society is. Well, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so clear here in Dublin where, you know, I mean, it's like 
tech is this like weird erosion virus on the side of the island of Ireland that's just like consuming things and really ruins people's lives the closer it gets to them where you know like and 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 Apple owes 13 billion dollars in taxes to the Irish people and it just I mean it's just fucking crazy but basically you see the housing stuff that happens here where like Google just buys housing like and just leaves it empty for employees that might move here and be put in and all that kind of stuff and you see people, you know, like the the whole conversation here is like people can't even, people can't afford to stay in Ireland, which is bizarre. Like that people, (laughs) this country that has like such a long cultural memory and like Mm -hmm. is so, so old that this nation is so old and like families have lived here generations and they can't afford to stay in Dublin. They actually have to leave the country to go get work and all this kind of stuff. And this is supposed to be a member of the EU. And it's all because of tech companies um, creating this kind of artificial, uh, idea of what housing should be and how much it should cost and, you know, like pandering to developers and then the government building, uh, you know, quote unquote, student housing, um, which is driving the prices up. And like the housing supposed to be in some cases for people that are working for these tech companies, but also people who are coming here to learn English so they can work for the tech companies, even though those are really end up being transient. Anyway, I'm going to go on and on and on about it. But everything that happened in San Francisco is happening here in Dublin now, mm-hmm. which is like, it really sucks to see it because <laughs> I was in San Francisco from 2007 to 2013. And it was just such a in the beginning it was kind of cool but there was such a weird bad time and it's all sort of happening here again and just so obvious and it's just such in plain Mm -hmm. sight you know and this is a place where people are supposed to have housing like no one should sleep on this street according to how the government's supposed to work here you know Mm -hmm. what kind of services are supposed to be provided to people so um like the government can't solve the problems because they've incentivized going into business with these tech companies and so it is really it is really terrible but i think something that you have said and written about which i love is saying okay well but what would happen if we instead of having the economics um, dominate the culture of the workers, what if the workers had more of a say, um, a degree of ethical control of what's being made, not just with like, well, we don't want to go into business with the army, but like, can we make meaningful tech that was actually help people? And I suppose people always thought that they were doing that, or at least along the line thought that they were doing that. But you're identifying the fact that there's actually not that much free space to do that anymore. Um, And so is that something that you see as like a promising area of moving forward where it's actually just maybe if you invest, uh, investigate your own imagination and your own desire to create something that is worthwhile in the world, you're not going to be creating the tech equivalent of a stupid fucking shark tank product, you know? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I the way I see it is it's like a process. It's a horizon rather than something we can do right now. Because mm. for me, the end goal is just to have much more broadly democratic control over production, like worker control of the means of production, essentially. And I think to think about this in the tech industry, you, you start with steps, right? Maybe like um, corporations just give more power to their workers or workers fight to have that power to be able to build what they want. The Lucas plan, I think is a very instructive thing here. Um, This was 
uh, Lucas Aerospace uh, in the 1970s, they were having financial difficulties. And so in some of the plants, the workers were saying, well, if this company is going to go under anyway, why not transition our plant from, you know, its original purpose of making uh, like defense, defense manufacturing things to something that we, the workers want to build. And so they wanted to build things that were um, about environmental sustainability or, I think like dialysis machines, just things where they're like, this is clearly useful. It's not about killing people. We want to build stuff that's uh-huh. useful. And the company obviously fought it. They didn't want that. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the workers did not succeed. But mm-hmm. I think there's something really beautiful in that idea that the workers who for years had been working at this company without any real control over what they were building were saying, well, actually, maybe we should have control. And here's what specifically we would do with that control. And there's just something so inspiring and wonderful about that. And, you know, it's just a first step. Um, I think if a tech company were to do that today, it'd be like, cool, that's great. That's a great first step. Now let's give more power to all workers, not just, you know, software engineers. But I think it, it is a useful imaginary because then it highlights how we could have a world where workers do have more control over their lives. And, you know, not just software engineers, but also say, Amazon warehouse workers or Uber drivers. Um, we could we could build a world where the technology is actually for the people who need it, as opposed to taking on a life of its own and you know embodying these drives of its own. We could have a world where individuals feel like they have more power over their lives. We don't have the institutions or the structures or the norms for that right now. I think that's the thing I want to emphasize. We are very, very far off from having anything like that world. The only place where we have even a sliver of it is, you know, in the the upper echelons of the the tech industry and maybe like the fin- the financial sector, sectors of the economy where there's a lot of money and you have people who are like doing well. Maybe CEOs, they probably have more power than the average worker. They have more control. But at the same time, they're still hemmed in by these larger structural forces which constrain their actions. So even if you're this really well-meaning CEO of a, you know, a big company and you, just, you decide, I'm just going to give all my workers a pay raise and I'm going to give my shareholders less money, your shareholders will be very, very angry about it and they will punish you. Your board might replace you. And so, yeah, I think we're just in this larger system where even the people who do have some power, they have some privilege, they have prestige, they're still limited in what they can do. And and so because of that, I think, you know, we have to look at the structural factors. We have to recognize that this is a big structural problem. And there are individual fixes that can be done to get us somewhere. And you know what you were saying before about like having a more diverse tech industry? I mean, yeah, like I agree, that's not enough. I think it might be a necessary step on the way. If we mm-hmm. want to make the tech industry a better place, you know, ultimately you'll have to be more diverse. But that the fact of it being diverse is not enough to change it. We'll need in an industry where even, you know, the, the most uh, low level workers have much more power and that workers like collectively have power to counteract the forces of capital from above. And yeah. And so I, in general, I think it's, you know, if we want to build a better world, then we're going to have to start with giving workers more control in whatever, um, wherever they, they could build it. And, you know, slowly building more power to the point where you have this like greater movement where all workers in general are able to exercise their collective power. And, you know, how is that going to play out? I don't know. Is that going to happen? I don't know. I hope so. (laughs) But I think I I am really inspired by the fact that there is a lot of organizing going on in the tech industry. And you can see some, some of these efforts like joining up where you have people 
you know, it's not just like that they're all happening um, in isolation, but instead I think many tech workers who are organizing are aware of this like broader movement and they're, you know, they're doing their best to link up with other efforts. So, yeah, I think, you know, I'm trying to, I I started out by being a little pessimistic, but I I do try to be optimistic. It's like the only way I get out of bed in the morning just to think (laughs) that the world might be better tomorrow, maybe, hopefully. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, that's all, that's all good. And like the, the, I mean, organizing workers on multiple levels, as you just said, is really great. And I even think like some of the people who are at the top are organizable, if the intentions in some way were there for these people who are um, millionaires and billionaires and God forbid, trillionaires, like that there might be, there's a sort of plot point in their life that is a fulcrum, you know, for, for some of the actions that uh, could be taken by their workers as well. But, you know, I just want to say like, (laughs) you don't have to go on this journey with me, but I think, you know, I'm really interested in kinds of uh, occult technologies as a way for inspiring some of this work, something that leans more into a subjective aspect of how to use tech. So things like, um, like Wilhelm Reich's like Orgone uh, accumulator and cloud busters, or there's this technology called radionics, this guy who created this thing called the Keeley machine. Um, I mean, I think Elon Musk tried to sort of appropriate some of that by naming his cars Tesla, which also had this sort of like occult aspect, but like stuff that doesn't necessarily even work but, um, or do, doesn't even function. I mean, I think some of those things do function, but doesn't even really work properly or at all, but rather allows people to uh, sort of uh, bring themselves to the possibilities of technology in a new way. There's this quote by this guy who I depend on a lot for my thinking, Rudolf Steiner, where he says, you know, to, uh, uh, the machine is, the machine is thought poured into mineral, you know? Mm. So if we pour our thoughts into the material in a different way, we might find ourselves really surprised at what comes out of those possibilities. And I just think even doing some of that imaginative work, because that's something that you and I, in this conversation, it's like, we bang our heads up against and i've heard you do it on other podcasts too where you're like i'm not exactly sure how we're gonna do this right (laughs) so it's sort of like shaking up the imagination enough that something else you know comes out because even you know that socialism is great but it also is like pretty marginally different from capitalism and i mean the, the effects would be tremendous in some ways but in other ways it's actually not that much different of a system and that's been the one that we've been relying on for years and you know decades and decades for you know us to have some kind of meaningful resistance and i and I think it's like, can we do more? Can we come up with new mm-hmm. things? Can we um, have new ideas here? And so um, I just sort of want to enter into that imaginal realm a little bit more um, when we're trying to approach this. And I think, um, and I think that that's where a lot of that's where a lot of tech stuff comes from. I mean, if you <laughs> if you look at Google as a kind of like representation of like the occult principle of the Akashic record, where it's like, I can reach any bit of information that's ever been produced ever of through all time, like through the simple act of like thinking about it. Now, of course it's been externalized and turned into a completely materialistic thing. And it's a fucking nightmare. And I love how you point out, like everybody talks about social media as being the bad thing, but like actually <laughs> like the, the search engines are terrible. And I, and I, 
I was so happy to hear you say that because I would always say to people, don't turn off your social media accounts. Like don't use a search engine for a week, like just for a week and just make yourself forget shit and like strain for stuff that you can't answer. Go to a store to see what times it's open, you know, like take a walk and like fail, you know, and have like the experience of failure and uh, missing the mark and all that kind of stuff. And so I really appreciated when, <laughs> when you said that too, by the, by the way. I, I like your point that we need broader imaginaries and that we should be, I don't know, thinking in just novel ways about the kind of world that we want to build. Um, I think for me, the way I think about socialism is that it's a very broad term and that I'm sure there are people who have very um, economistic and maybe like dry and not even that different ideas of socialism compared to what we have now. And then I think there are people who are thinking much more broadly about like how to completely reimagine the world, reimagine our relationship to the earth, to each other, to culture, like to, to just really everything. And I think for me, I've, the term is expansive enough that I still use it um, just mm. to describe basically any sort of system that is better than capitalism, which I, I know is maybe <laughs> not the, it's, it's a little bit too broad of a definition, but at this point it's like, we're so far off from that, that we might as well just be really expansive with our thinking. But yeah, I, I like that. I think that's not something I really have much um, experience with, but yeah, yeah, I think it's useful to, I don't know, just uh, think really broadly about what we what we want and how the world that we have now is inhibiting us from getting there. Yeah, well, um, I just want to say thank you for opening more space for people to have those questions and to have a new kind of response. And I think, you know, you've put it pretty aptly elsewhere where you just say, you know, like, what is this for? What is tech for? What is the economy for? And as long as we continue to ask that question, at least it corrects our posture and our orientation to the thing that uh, needs to be radically reimagined. So I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate having this conversation with you. <laughs> I really appreciate it too. This has been, it's been fun and going into all sorts of directions that I haven't really talked about before. So yeah, I really enjoyed this. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening.